0: You don't have to say anything, and you don't have to do anything. Not a thing. Oh, maybe just whistle.
1: One of the great romantic scenes in film is in To Have or Have Not, Lauren Bacall to Humphrey Bogart.
0: You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.
1: Very coy and romantic. Yeah, it's romantic. And romance is one of the great pleasures we
2: have. Well, yeah, Molly, but but the pleasure in this case is also a great evolutionary mechanism.
1: (laughs) They should have just included that line in the film, Seth. Who needs witty repartee? No, you get me
2: wrong. (laughs) I'm all for romance and all, but I'm just saying pleasure is practical. Romance is practical. It pays off. In this case, it's a way we get rewarded for behavior that, you know, leads to more humans.
1: Listening to music, for example, doesn't lead to more humans. Well, yeah, but... What I'm saying is that there are a lot of things that make us happy that don't just continue the species.
2: Well, some music might lead to more humans, but you're (laughs) right. There are things we enjoy that don't have obvious adaptive benefit. Like rebuilding old cars, turning them into hot rods, although maybe that develops
1: advanced tool use fitness. I don't know. But it seems like there are other things that we do simply because we enjoy them. It doesn't seem obvious why we're doing it. That may be because our DNA was wired up 100,000 years ago or
2: whatever, and the value of that rewarded behavior may not be so obvious today, but it still drives us. I'm Seth Shostak.
1: I'm Molly Bentley, and in this hour of Big Picture Science, the biology, rather the psychology of pleasure, we'll also meet our pleasure-loving cousins, the bonobos.
2: These primates may be remarkably peaceful, but humans have greater self-awareness, right? Well, monkeys may recognize themselves in a mirror, and maybe, just maybe, bacteria can do that too with tiny, tiny mirrors. That's all coming up.
1: (laughs) But are humans self-aware about what makes them happy? We all know what we like, but do we know why we like what we do?
2: Well, there are some obvious drivers for why we like food and sex.
1: But how about other things that give us pleasure? Why we buy Monet paintings? I know why I
2: don't buy them. I don't have $80 million on me.
1: (laughs) Or we remain attached to our teddy bears or shop for celebrity memorabilia on eBay. These are the less obvious pleasures we take in the world. And psychologist Paul Bloom says they're driven by unconscious desires. Now take the food you mentioned, Seth. It's actually not straightforward why we love eating so much. Turns out we're happy not so much because of what we're eating, but what we think we're eating or drinking.
3: Really, if you want to impress somebody with your wine, if you want them to enjoy it a lot more, tell them it costs $200. They've even done this in an fMRI machine. So it's my favorite Neuroscan study. They get people on their backs in an fMRI machine and while their brains are being scanned, they're sipping wine. And as they're sipping wine, in front of them is the screen telling them about the wine. If they think they're drinking cheap wine, you know, they just don't respond that much. It's no big deal. But if they think they're drinking the expensive stuff, the pleasure centers of their brain light up.
1: Now, a- another example you give is that apples for children taste better if the apple pops out of a McDonald's bag.
3: <laughs> That's right. There's... there's There must be a dozen examples like that. You can make apples taste better and milk taste better for children by taking them out from a McDonald's bag. Ice cream tastes better if it's full fat as opposed to partial fat.
1: That's very interesting, although some of it seems like this would be based in our biology. With the example of fat, there's a reason why we take great pleasure in sugar and fat because back when we were on the Savannah, there wasn't a lot of that. It was in short supply, and so we want to gobble it up when it's available.
3: That's right, and I think for any pleasure, and food is one example, sex is another example, there are two compatible stories to tell. So one is what you just said, which is we've evolved uh, a propensity to enjoy foods that are adaptively good for us. But the second story is that in our modern culture with our sort of essentialist bias, our bias to look deep, we're strongly swayed by our beliefs about what it is we're eating and drinking.
1: So there's a psychological component here. The idea is that we enjoy enjoy things for what we think they are rather than any particular utility. And I'm wondering, what advantage does that have?
3: I don't think it has any advantage. I don't think it's, it's for the most part, a biological adaptation. I think the story of pleasure is, in large part, we've developed a a broad essentialist bias, a broad understanding of uh, the world in terms of the deeper nature of things. But now that we have that, something which evolved, I think, for our understanding of everyday objects and animals, it extends to our pleasure, and it affects our pleasure in ways that evolution has never anticipated. So one example, for instance, is objects. We we like objects, not merely because of their utility, but because of their histories.
1: On the subject of objects, objects having this particular essence, I want to play a conversation that I had with Gary. I brought him in as okay. as a bit of a guinea pig, and and I'd be interested in uh, your reaction to what he has to say. First, hello. Hi. Nice to see you. Good to see you. <laughs> okay. I want to do a little experiment on you. Uh, it's painless. <laughs> so, Gary, you're married. Yes. To the disappointment of many women out there. I'm sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> Now, you're wearing a wedding ring. If I were to take that wedding ring from you and replace it with one that was identical, identical, the the inscription, the the ring, everything was exactly the same, would you agree to the trade? No. Why?
4: Because my ring was given to me by my wife.
1: OK. What if I gave you $10,000 for that ring and then replaced it with the identical one? Well, I'd start thinking about it. OK. Does she know that? No. <laughs> she will after this airs. <laughs> so, so, Paul, Why won't Gary give up his ring for an identical one? It's identical.
3: Well, Gary's entirely typical. I mean, that's that's (laughs) it may not happen with everybody's wedding ring, but just about everybody I know has some object in their life that's special, not by dint of its physical properties, but by dint of its history. So he says his wife gave it to him. That's a special history. The most perfect duplicate in the world couldn't duplicate that property because it would be a different object. And what he's illustrating is what I think is a fascinating aspect of human psychology, which is part of the way we respond to objects and part of the way we value objects has to do with their invisible history, has to do with where we think they
1: came from. But that's a psychological attachment. I mean, I could sneak in and switch the rings, and the utility wouldn't change. It would look the same. It would be on his finger. He wouldn't know the difference.
3: Absolutely. In an important sense, it's all in his head. Um, if 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 Gary owned a Picasso. And you broke into his house and stole it and then replaced it with a perfectly good forgery. And he couldn't tell the difference. Then he would be none the wiser. But the moment he found out, it would make a huge difference to him.
1: And it would diminish in value.
3: It would diminish hugely in value.
1: Okay, let me, on the subject of fame, I did a second experiment with Gary. Just pulled up eBay. Have you ever shopped on eBay?
3: Oh,
4: yeah, quite a bit.
1: (laughs) Okay, we used my account, though. Now, I want you to give me the name of a celebrity... It could be a politician who's well-known or a celebrity of any kind.
4: Okay, uh, Jimmy Carter.
1: Okay, Jimmy Carter. Let's put him in here. Okay, so when we type in Jimmy Carter, a number of things come up. Okay, now let's look at the one that was the most expensive.
4: Okay, so that's the $60,000 unsigned speech.
1: This is a speech from the 1976 Democratic nomination for president when he accepted the nomination. This is a speech that's written in his hand. Jimmy Carter held a pen, and he actually wrote this speech. Now, you're a fan of Jimmy Carter. Would you pay $60,000 for this? Because it was his.
4: No, I don't think I would do that.
1: Okay, but can you imagine that there'd be somebody out there for whom $60,000 would be a bargain for something that Jimmy Carter had written?
4: Maybe, I suppose, yeah.
1: Now, what if he hadn't written it? What if this is something that had just been typed up on a computer, but it didn't have Jimmy Carter's handwriting?
4: Then no, I don't think you would find somebody who would pay $60,000 for that.
1: But what if Jimmy Carter actually used that computer to write it?
4: Still no, I I don't see that being as worth $60,000 as his handwritten speech.
1: What's your take on that, Paul?
3: So that's another illustration of how history matters. So history can matter for the value of an object in all sorts of ways. It could be personal history, like your wedding ring, like who gave it to you. It could be your own history with something, like a child teddy bear. But the history that matters most dramatically uh, is often contact with other people, particularly famous people, or somehow a connection with a famous event. So Jimmy Carter's speech gets value um, not because of its physical properties. You could imagine a photocopy of that.
1: I want to give another example, but this one, uh, this time I'm going to test you. Okay. Uh, so hang on. Were you able to identify that piece of music?
3: I'm afraid I wasn't.
1: Did you enjoy it, more importantly? I, it was very nice. Okay. Were you able to identify the artist? <laughs> that was Joshua Bell.
3: Ah, Joshua Bell.
1: And That must ring a bell with you.
3: So to speak, yeah.
1: Because of uh, an experiment that was done with him, which you you described. Now here, this is, he's a famous uh, violinist, and one would think that would be universally recognized no matter what the setting, but that's not the case.
3: So this was an experiment done by Gene Weingarten, who was a reporter for Washington Post. And what he did was he convinced Joshua Bell... Uh, let me step back. He was interested in the question. How would Joshua Bell found to somebody who didn't know it was Joshua Bell? And he convinced Joshua Bell to bring his violin, uh his million dollar violin, into Washington D C subway station and uh, play for the crowd. And um, and when he did it found out that people were pretty indifferent. This great musician was playing and people were just gonna kind of hustle on by. And after an hour of playing, Bell got around the same amount of money as anybody would have gotten that plot. And I think what that illustrates, it illustrates a few things, but I think one of the things it illustrates is that how you hear something is greatly dependent on what you think you're going to be hearing, on what you believe you're hearing. So the same people that would spend $200 to hear them in a symphony, and in fact one woman who walked by spent just that much to hear them a few months ago, when they hear the same music from some scruffy guy in a subway station, it sounds very different.
1: Although, Paul, you did enjoy that piece of music that I played for you. It didn't seem to matter to you whether or not it was Joshua Bell or not. And that gets to another great pleasure that humans take, and that's in music. We love music. And I understand that uh, some scientists believe that this is just an accident, a happy accident, that we happen to like music.
3: Yeah, nobody knows why we like music. I mean, Darwin described it as a great mystery. And, and, And right now there's no real theory, good theory, as to why... There's sort of controversy. Some people see music, our love of music, as a biological adaptation. Um, maybe it comes out from courtship. Maybe it brings people together and has a social purpose. But other people, like Steve Pinker, see music as a biological accident. He, ta- he describes it as auditory cheesecake. So cheesecake isn't something we've evolved to like, but it's something which has been exquisitely designed to, p- to press our pleasure buttons, buttons that have evolved for different things. The Pinker says music is much the same. Music is this glorious invention that tickles us in ways that evolution has never anticipated.
2: Hey, Molly, this is an interesting discussion. We're going to hear more from Bloom in a moment. But I have to say, it's not obvious to me what's the survival benefit of wearing George Clooney's unwashed sweater— Except that maybe there's an advantage in aligning yourself with societal leaders, you know, your tribal chiefs.
1: Well, what did you think of that story of Joshua Bell? I mean, he's worth $100 in the concert hall, right?
2: But, yeah, but in the subway, not even a few dollars. Well, I have to tell you, I would have done the same thing. You would have walked right by him? I would have. I would have walked right by.
1: Well, back to Paul Bloom, because I had a couple other questions for him. And let's start with this idea of music. If music is something that we like so much, it's it's a big part of our lives— and it happens to be an accident, then it raises the larger question of why does pleasure matter to us?
3: Human pleasure is absolutely fascinating because it's based on the combination, an exquisite combination of evolution and culture. So, evolution has wired us up to like certain things sweet food, attractive people, um, safety, warmth, water when we're thirsty, uh, roof over our heads, and these fundamental pleasures. But then, And due to culture and technology, the scope of human pleasure expands. So modern humans get tremendous pleasure from things that are relatively recent inventions that we've never evolved to deal with. Things like pornography, or novels, or movies, cheesecake, and ice cream, and hot fudge sundaes, and, um, and alcohol, and marijuana, and all sorts of these incredible inventions that tickle our pleasure centers. in in ways that we've never really evolved to deal with. We can now, through technology, create um, foods that are far sweeter and have far more intense flavors than anything we would have ever eaten in the wild.
1: And our brains are still the same brains um, from the Stone Age or so. We haven't changed all that much in terms of the the physiology of our brains. Is is that right? And, And now we're in this incredibly sophisticated, technologically driven world.
3: That's right. So we haven't evolved to respond to the inducements of alcohol or video games or television or novels. Um, we're still dealing with, with these uh, enticements, these pleasures, with brains that have evolved for a hunter-gatherer existence. I, I, you know, I think this is wonderful. I would not want to go back to living as a hunter-gatherer. But many of the, of the struggles we face in everyday life, um, struggles like obesity, for instance, or alcoholism, or, one, or the many forms of addiction, um, exist because we have Stone Age minds in a modern world.
1: Paul, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank
3: you very much for having
1: me.
2: How Pleasure Works, the new science of why we like what we like, is the title of Yale University psychologist Paul Bloom's book. Coming up, hey, who's songing on this violin, Molly? What an amateur.
1: (laughs) We may be hedonistic, but we have nothing on our make love, not war cousins, the bonobos, whose pleasure seems to lead to peace. It's Big Picture Science.
2: Welcome back to Big Picture Science. In the genus Pan, in the genus Pan, there are two species of ape. One is the chimpanzee, and the other is the bonobo.
1: And they're the closest living relatives of another primate, Homo sapiens
2: sapiens. But how is it that we ended up with that taxonomic rank? Well, Homo is the genus for modern humans, but sapiens sapiens, which means wise-wise, because we have these big brains, right?
1: Yet it's our hirsute cousin, the bonobo, that's done what we can't seem to, achieve peace. Okay, it's peace through pleasure. Specifically, sexual pleasure.
2: Well, it's true. But what interests me about bonobos is not that they're hedonistic, if you want to call them that. I mean, after all, there have been a lot of hedonistic cultures throughout history. For, For humans, think of the South Sea Islands. I mean, this may not be true anymore. But there was a time when they were seen by Europeans as an immoral culture because, you know, they were fairly lax about sex and stuff like that. But what's interesting is that bonobos also seem to be non-aggressive. And that strikes me as ironic because people have often said that if you have an immoral society, it won't be stable. It it, it, it it can't survive. Well, that's certainly not true for these hedonistic, immoral bonobos.
1: And yet chimpanzees who are as close to us as bonobos are are not non-aggressive. I mean, there are a lot of things, a lot of amazing things. They're incredible animals, but they're also aggressive. So maybe these two species together are like the yin and yang, the Jekyll and Hyde, that represent two sides of the human character.
2: Well, not a lot of humans do the bonobo handshake, at least in public. Maybe they should. You'll find out what that is in a moment, by the way. Bonobo handshake, it's the title of Duke University researcher Vanessa Wood's book.
1: And the story of her trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is the only country where bonobos live. She went there to reside in a sanctuary for the apes, along with her fiancé. And she discovered how amazing it can be to meet a new relative
5: they share 98.7% of our DNA. And um, instead of being male-dominated like, like chimpanzees with quite a lot of violence, they are female-dominated and there's very little violence in their society. So just the fact that they've been ignored is just so criminal because what better species to study than, you know, something that is so closely related to us and yet doesn't have a, a lot of the issues that we have.
2: Well, no, well, but why have they been ignored? I mean, why, why is it that you grab a guy off the street and say, have you heard of chimpanzees? And they always say yes. If you say, have you heard of bonobos, they mostly say no. What what happened?
5: We- I think it was the sex, uh, and specifically I think it was the lesbian sex. I, I don't really think America, when François blew the story open in the 80s, I don't really think America was ready for this animal that was you know, so similar to us, and then yet, you know, did all these outrageous things.
2: Now you mentioned France blowing the whole thing open. You're referring to <laughs> Franz Deval at uh... Yes,
5: Franz Deval at um at Emory University. He was really the one that uncovered Bonobos having sex in all these crazy positions and crazy ways and you know, across gender, across age and yeah, that was that was a bit much for America to handle at the time.
2: All right. Well now you spent a lot of time with these guys at a uh, at, at a sanctuary in the Congo mm-hmm. uh, which was Devoted to taking care of orphaned bonobos. First, just very quickly, I mean, how did they get orphaned?
5: Well, the Congolese, they eat bonobo meat. Um, you know, it's a huge country, extremely poor. They they have this jungle three times the size of France and very little agriculture. So, you know, they hunt bonobos and um, when they kill them, there's usually an infant or two hanging on to their dead mothers. And so they try and sell these babies as pets. And um, and this is completely illegal in Congo, so they get confiscated, but then, you know, there has to be somewhere to put this, this orphan, and so they send them to Lalea Bonobo Sanctuary in Congo.
2: All right, and that's where you were. Uh, and, and what was it like? Because when you Arrived there, I believe you were not all that keen on bonobos.
5: No, yeah. <laughs> well, I was like a chimpanzee person, just like everybody else, and I was like, oh, you know, bonobos is. Are- you know, over sex little things. But I have come to realise that bonobos are going to save the world. And I'm not using hyperbole here. I really think they're gonna save the planet because so much of what we struggle with as humans, um, you know, things like the economy, things like, you know, cooperation over the oil spill, things like, you know, the immigration laws in Arizona, these is all so relevant to why we are the way we are. And the only way we can, you know, figure out a about where some of this is coming from is by looking at our closest living relatives, which is chimpanzees, but then it's also the bonobos. And bonobos have just got so much to teach us.
2: Well, well let's get into that a little bit because <laughs> your, your <laughs> husband, and he wasn't your husband when you first uh, no. you know, encountered him here at this sanctuary, but Brian Hare, he's a well-known primatologist, uh, a researcher now at Duke University, he was trying to use the bonobos to do exactly what you just said. In other words, to understand what it is that makes us the way we are, One of the things he was interested in was their ability to cooperate. The fact that Mm -hmm. they were open to other members of their species, right? They didn't regard everybody as an enemy. Everybody was a... Potential friend, wasn't yes, that? Yes, a- and
5: that's something that humans can really learn from. Because in some ways, we are these extraordinarily cooperative people. I mean, we go to the moon and we go to these telescopes, and you know, we're trying to find you to know, this life in outer space. So hopefully, we can cooperate with them. But sometimes human cooperation breaks down. And you know, when you're looking at the oil spill, we are very, very cooperative in drilling it, and we're not so quite so cooperative when it comes to cleaning it up. So what he's interested in, um, what we're interested in, is looking at our closest living relatives and. Figuring out what constrains cooperation. And with chimpanzees, um, they are excellent cooperators, you know, almost to the sophistication of humans. But what happens with chimps is that their emotions get in the way. It's not a, a question of intelligence. It's just, you know, they get into a situation and they, and they can't do it because they're so intolerant.
2: Can you give me an example?
5: Well, so, you know, say there's a pile of food, and in- instead of being divided into two piles of food so each chimpanzee can have one, if you merge that pile of food into one, cooperation just completely falls apart because they can't overcome their extreme anxiety and tension that somebody is going to get all the food and then they're not going to have any.
2: So, so they'd rather starve than... They sing. would.
5: That's it. Nobody gets any food, and this just does not make any sense. It's like, it's, surely it's better to get, like, a little bit of a banana than no banana, but no, chimpanzees, they just will not do it. And with bonobos... It's it's entirely the opposite. And we, during these experiments, we didn't even really know how much the bonobos understood, but they ended up being better cooperators than chimpanzees because they were so tolerant. And so, you know, when it comes to human cooperation, we think it's a question of intelligence, but usually when you see cooperation breaking down, it's a question of emotion and the fact that, you know, people just can't, there's a, there's a question of tolerance involved.
2: But, but when you say emotion, I mean, I'm, I'm... I assume we come wired with these emotions, right? So there must have been some something in our history that allowed us or encouraged us, in fact, selected us to have the kind of emotional reaction to situations that the chimps have. And the bonobos don't. It sounds to me like the bonobos are sort of the odd man out there. They're the, the odd ones here.
5: Oh, I, I completely understand what you're saying, but actually no. And within group, we are more bonobo than bonobos. We can be extremely cooperative. Um, at, but as long as we're cooperating with people we see as being like us. When it comes to between groups, so people of a different race, of a different religion, of a different sports team, I mean, the lines are very, very flexible, but it's these between groups that we start acting like chimpanzees. So you see why bonobos are important. You know, It's because with chimpanzees, you only really have half the picture. You need bonobos to really understand who we are.
2: Well, when it comes to the sex, are we closer (laughs) to the
5: chimps? (laughs) No, I think that the sex in bonobos is really... Our problem that we have with it. And the point is that bonobos have this mechanism to overcome tension and, and cooperate. Now, what our mechanism is going to be, I don't know, but we need to find one because for all this incredible stuff that we can do, I mean, you're at SETI, you know all the stuff that we're capable of. For all that, we still have not got world peace. And, and what is that? We are so incredibly intelligent and we still cannot manage to live in a society where, you know, people don't get killed.
2: I'm talking with Vanessa Woods, a researcher at Duke University and author of Bonobo Handshake. Uh, Do you dare tell me what the Bonobo Handshake is?
5: It's when two females rub their clitorises together um, until they orgasm. They look like they're orgasming. Um, they sound like they're orgasming. So this is what promotes the bonds between females and, you know, sort of suppresses male violence is because the females are incredibly good friends. And if a male aggresses towards them or starts acting like a chimpanzee, they will just slap him down. And, you know, the, the bonobo handshake is what seems to sort of maintain these friendships among females.
2: And, and it is the females. The, the males aren't doing something similar.
5: Well, like um, they kind of penis fence, but there's no, it's not like homosexual sex in, in humans where there's like penetration and ejaculation. They're just, you know, it, it's just, it's so much like a handshake for them. It's just sociosexual behavior and it's really not a big deal.
2: Vanessa, even aside from the sex, I mean, there are other emotions displayed by these bonobos. Mm-hmm. Uh, when one of them dies, how how do they take that? Do they just you know just walk away from it like so many animals do?
5: I have seen the most incredible things in bonobos, and and that's why one of the reason why I wrote Bonobo Handshake is because you know I just thought it was criminal that people didn't know how sentient these animals are and that they were completely ignored. And um, yes, when one of the bonobos died, there was a hugely emotional scene that I think you know anyone one that says animals don't feel emotions or, you know, the way we describe apes as having lesser emotions than ourselves and, and the way we kind of caricature them, um, you know, and, and we use ape in a, a derogatory term. But what I've seen with bonobos really just, just blew my mind.
2: Well, give me me an example.
5: So one of the things I saw was Mimi. She was the alpha female. You know, she was kind of like a little bit of a witch. She didn't really like the little boys because, you know, she's a bonobo female. And then um, one day, Lopopo, who was a seven-year-old male, he he died. And she threw herself over the body. And, you know, the keepers came and they came with these long sticks. I mean, you know, she's just a, a tiny little thing. It must have been terrifying for her. But she wouldn't leave the body. And then, you know, the vet turns up with a dart gun, which looks like a gun. And the last thing Mimi saw, but the last thing any of these bonobos saw before their mother was killed was a man with a gun. And she still wouldn't leave the body. And she 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 just she groomed him and she kissed him and she swatted away the flies. I mean, everybody was crying. It was it was so moving to see that. And and you know and when you witness that How can you say that, you know, these animals don't deserve to be saved, that they deserve to be ignored? Like, apart from the sex, when you you see something like this, how can, you know, we just let them go extinct without finding more about them? Vanessa
1: Woods is a research scientist at Duke University and the author of Bonobo Handshake. Bonobos are among the world's most endangered ape, with fewer than 10,000 left in the wild. For those who want to help our cousins, Vanessa recommends visiting... Friends of Bonobos.org. A link is also on our website.
2: Monkey see, monkey do, ape see, ape do. Well, we see what other apes do, and we don't do it. We're not peaceful primates. But humans are not monkeys, or even chimps for that matter. Nope, we're different from these beasts. At least we've always thought so.
1: But the line is increasingly blurry. First, we thought only humans could use tools. But Jane Goodall witnessed chimpanzees using tools. Well, they were sticks, mind you. They're not pliers or
2: anvils. And, And then they found out that chimps can learn language, and even birds can learn language. So language is not the difference between animals and humans. The question is, what is different? Our love of Sudoku, maybe? I don't know. But some would say it's self-awareness. Humans can separate self and other.
1: Ah, but even that. Now, there's something called the mirror test, and only a few species can pass it and recognize themselves in their reflection. Elephants, chimpanzees, dolphins, magpies, and...
4: Hey, handsome, look at you. Wait, need more hair pomade. Oh, yeah, it's happening.
1: Humans, of course, but another animal may join the list of the self-aware, monkeys. Now, these are monkeys, not apes. Now, some of this pioneering research was done by Harvard evolutionary biologist Mark Hauser. He has since been charged with scientific misconduct and is the subject of an internal investigation at the university. The case has somewhat stalled the field of cognitive animal behavior because, after all, research builds on previous research. And now some of what we think separates us from the monkeys is in doubt. The mirror recognition test for cotton-top tamarins
2: is not under scrutiny, however, because Dr. Hauser wasn't able to repeat his own results and he made a correction in the literature. But now another team has repeated it with success, using rhesus monkeys. Monkey see, monkey do, recognize self in mirror.
1: Julie Nyworth, a psychologist at Carleton College, now wants to repeat Dr. Hauser's language experiment and continue to review the latest results in the monkey mirror test.
0: The mirror test is something that was developed for children, actually, and was used to test chimps a long time ago by Gordon Gallup. And it consists of marking the forehead of an animal or a young child with usually with red, uh, the color red, and having them look in a mirror. Uh, Obviously, when you mark someone's head, they might be able to feel the paint. So you compare the number of times they touch their head just because the mark is there and there's no mirror present, versus how often they touch their head while looking in a mirror. And the idea is If you look in the mirror and you know that's yourself and you can see a red mark on your forehead that you would have some concern over that, even if you were an animal, we expect animals to touch it.
1: Now, is that what he claimed that these cotton-top tamarins were able to do, that they, they saw the red mark on their own foreheads and then touched their foreheads?
0: Yeah, the problem with the data generally with most of the animals tested is that it happens at a very low frequency, even with chimpanzees. So if you look at original data, There'll be a set of chimps that don't do it and a few that do. And what Mark had published, he'd found, was in a condition when six tamarins had long exposure to the mirror, so they were exposed to it for a couple of weeks, so they got used to being in front of a mirror. Then those, from those six tamarins, two of them touched the mark on their head and four didn't. That's not that crazy compared to what chimps or other apes would do, but it's not you know, a high rate.
1: So it could be explained just by random chance that monkeys tend to touch their body, all parts of their body, (laughs) at different times. And could it just be chance?
0: Well, that's why you compare it with times when their forehead is marked and the mirror is not there. And it's a higher rate over the short period of time you measure it when the mirror is there than not. And Mark tried to replicate it several years later and didn't find any of the tamarins doing it. If I can add one other study in uh, 2010 with rhesus monkeys out of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and those monkeys had electrode implants put in their foreheads for a different study, and there were mirrors around, and those monkeys were very interested in their implants and were touching them a lot, and that is also a rare finding.
1: But the bigger implication here is that these monkeys, not apes and not humans, but these monkeys possess self-recognition. And and why is that important in in the field of animal cognition?
0: We get into the issue of social awareness and how aware animals are of themselves and others. The reason that's a big deal, I don't think it's such a big deal about recognizing self so much as it is about using the knowledge about yourself versus other to strategize in some way. So we know that we think of ourselves a lot, and we know we separate ourselves from others. And we can share information, we can withhold information, we can manipulate things, because we understand that. It may be one of the big differences between humans and lots of other animals, including apes, is that we have a much more complex sense of Self, other and can plan and strategize around that. So if you wanted to test that out you'd want to know which primates can differentiate easily self and other and use that differentiation.
1: You plan to repeat some of Dr. Hauser's experiments because you work with tamarins. What work are you going to do?
0: My first plan is to repeat a study that was retracted on language learning. It really wasn't about language per se, but it was sequence learning. It was an important study because it showed that the tamarins were sensitive to changes in patterns, and some people think that language pattern perception is the beginning of learning language for infants. So this study, which was impressive to people back in 2002 and has been cited a lot, is one that was retracted there's a question as to whether or not the monkeys showed a sensitivity to the changes in patterns. And so I think it's important for me to start there.
1: Can you give me an example? What does that mean, the changes in patterns?
0: So the monkeys would hear something that would be akin to A, B, B, but it would be sounds like syllables, like ma, fa, fa, or something like that. And they'd hear different versions of this A, B, B sequence over and over again. And then as a test, you'd play them a new A, B, B or something that had a slightly different pattern, like AAB. And the data of interest would be whether they look or react in a novel way to the new pattern. And developmental psychologists think that babies can notice this very early on, and it helps them to parse language. So if monkeys could do the same thing, then it would mean that there's a kind of primitive word kind of sequencer that helps monkeys and people hear differences in patterns.
1: Why is that separate, this ability to be able to hear differences in sound?
0: There's been a long argument that there's a kind of universal grammar that humans have, that we're biologically hardwired to pay attention to language and language changes from birth. And if one makes that argument, one would have to say that humans have that as a specialized mechanism and other primates don't, including apes.
2: Hold on to that thought, all you primates. We'll return to it in a moment. It's Aware Am I on Big Picture Science. You're listening to Big Picture Science. Let's continue our conversation with psychologist Julie Nyworth about whether monkeys are self-aware and possess language.
1: What about when we talk about the arts and so forth, these endeavors that humans undertake that give us a lot of pleasure, music and writing and entertainment and all of that, do you see that in other primates?
0: There have been recent studies about music and tamarins in particular that tamarins like a particular kind of music but the music that was composed for them was based on their own vocal sounds so they tend to like to listen to sounds that mimic how they would call to each other monkeys as a rule don't tend to express themselves in art you know you don't get paintings out of them and there's not humming or something. So I think that they're kind of missing the aesthetic pleasurable aspect of that.
1: And finally, Julie, is there any faculty that you suspect that tamarins have? Um, This is just speculative now, but you can't prove it. But you feel like they may have this ability, but you need to set up the right experiment or so to prove it. Are you willing to speculate on something that you've observed that we share with these smaller primates?
0: I can talk about two things briefly. One that I'm researching and that has to do with whether they understand what you know. I think they may think about people and how they're thinking more than you would guess. So we're trying to test that out by having different student researchers go in. One of them knows where something is hidden and the other one was not present when the thing was hidden. And they both point to indicate where something is. And the question is, which one does the monkey kind of listen to? Which information do they follow? So do they get that a person who we call the guesser doesn't know? And so far, we've only tested two monkeys, but they both follow the knower, the one who actually was involved in the hiding, and they don't follow the guesser most of the time. And that's the kind of sophisticated thinking that I wouldn't expect them to have. The other story I wanted to tell was there was one monkey who was very sick, and she needed medicine, and I had to give it to her every day, and she didn't like to take it. So I kept telling her, take your medicine, take your medicine, and I tried to hand it to her. And one day, she looked right at me, and she shook her head no. And they don't know our language. We've never trained them to do any facial change or movement to indicate language. And it looked to me like she was telling me no. And it's possible she picked that up. She'd been living around humans a long time. But I was just floored. I was like, are you telling me no? I don't know that I'd ever be able to prove what she thought at the time.
1: It seems like this is a challenge for scientists who work with animals when you become very close to them and when they are so close to humans that you begin to maybe anticipate a particular reaction. And that may be, now we don't know, what also happened in the case of Dr. Hauser, that it's understandable that you want a certain human-like reaction in these other creatures.
0: Yeah, and that's why we have to count on science. That's why I'd never publish what I just told you. Uh, Anecdotes and what you wish is not what we put in print. It's what we can prove with very solid testing.
1: Julie, thank you very much for talking to us. Sure. Julie Nyworth hones her
2: own self-awareness and studies it in our primate relatives as a psychologist at Carlton College in Minnesota. You know, Molly, when we talk about animal awareness, I have to say I had mixed feelings about a year or so ago when they announced that fish can feel pain. I mean, I wasn't surprised by that, but apparently a lot of people were. I always thought it was true. And that's why I never wanted to go fishing. I never wanted to put a hook into a fish's mouth because I figured they could feel it, and they just don't enjoy getting caught. So I I
1: never went. Well, what about carrots? I mean, can carrots feel pain when you pull them out of the ground? I I have to feel like there's one food group that I don't have to worry about.
2: Well, I I don't think you have to worry so much about it because I don't think carrots have a nervous system. But (laughs) then again, people do talk about the secret life of plants, so I don't know. But when it comes to fish, to monkeys... You know, they may not have rights under the Constitution, but it seems to me they have some sort of moral
1: rights because they're wired up pretty much the same way we are. Well, if we're doing comparisons about self-awareness, hold on to your hat, your very, very tiny hat, because now the talk of awareness extends to what's under your fingernails and on your head and your eyebrows.
2: Cell for cell, I'm more microbe than man, more microbes in me and on me than human cells. Could
1: bacteria be aware?
2: There are people that don't brush their teeth because that kills bacteria.
1: (laughs) I hope I never have to stand next to them in a crowded elevator or anything like that. But are the bacteria aware of the toothbrush? That's the question. Are they aware at all? Bacteria are small but not stupid. That's the bacterial geneticist James Shapiro's answer and the title of a paper on a subject that he studied for nearly 50 years.
6: Bacteria, like all cells, are full of sensors. They can detect nutrients, they can detect toxins, they can monitor what's going on inside of them, how their DNA is replicating, how their cell wall is being synthesized. And they have networks to process the information they pick up with these sensors so that they do the right thing when they need to make a change or an adjustment in their metabolism or move somewhere to, to get more nutrients. So in that sense, I think you could talk about them as having sensory capabilities and processing the information and responding to it appropriately.
2: Well, you've written a paper called Bacteria Are Small But Not Stupid. Maybe you could give me a concrete example of something that I might witness under a microscope if I were studying bacteria that might amaze me by its apparent intelligence.
6: Actually, this goes way back to the beginnings of molecular biology. Uh, In 1942, Jacques Monod, one of the real pioneers of molecular biology, showed that bacteria E. coli could distinguish between two sugars, glucose and lactose, and adjust their metabolism so that they would consume the glucose first, they grew on that faster, and then use the lactose only after they'd completely consumed the glucose. So clearly those bacteria were able to recognize and distinguish two different sugars.
2: Well, they certainly sound very sophisticated, but might you not argue that these are sort of pre-programmed responses that they've you know, developed over three billion years or whatever, whatever the length of time they've been around to, to evolve? I mean, that, that it's not intelligence in any sense. It's simply that's the way they're engineered,
6: Well, I guess you'd have to ask who engineered them, and uh, I think you raise a question as to how much of this can be automatic, because the number of possible contingencies gets to be impossibly large. So until we fully understand how the bacteria process the information that they receive from all of these sensory uh, molecules that they have and make biologically appropriate decisions, I think we're not in a position to say that whether it's automatic or it's in any way what we would call cognitive and uh, that they're actually figuring out what's best for them to do.
2: One of the things that impresses me the most about the behavior of bacteria, now I've read about this, where they get together, they tend to swarm. They will even attack enemies in in a swarm, And, and they like to live in these colonies, these slimes, if you will, these films. What is the benefit to them to having this kind of communal lifestyle?
6: Well, there are many uh, benefits. You're right. The E. coli that I studied personally formed very highly organized and differentiated colonies, and I was able to see that the cells maximized their contact between cells uh, as they grew, and so clearly they had evolved to grow in groups Uh, They get a lot of benefits from that. It allows them to protect themselves against viruses and antibiotics. We know that bacteria do most of what they do in nature in groups as colonies or biofilms, which are kind of spread out colonies on top of surfaces. They can accumulate nutrients better that way. They can grow. They can transfer DNA. And uh, even recently people have found that using bacteria to make bioelectricity, that their capacity to transfer electrons to an electrode increases as they grow and mature as biofilms on the electrode surfaces. So there are lots of uh, benefits that the bacteria get from growing together.
2: So this sort of naive idea that I, I guess I picked up in, you know, I don't know, elementary school, that bacteria consist of little independent organisms that really don't necessarily have very much to do with one another, that sounds to me like it's wrong. I mean, these creatures sound more like the Borg. They're some sort of collective species.
6: Well, I think the idea of bacteria as single-celled organisms comes from the history of studying bacteria that cause disease and how important it was to Robert Cook and his disciples to isolate the progeny of a single cell and prove that they could cause disease. So the science of bacteriology focused on single cells. But actually, if we look at bacteria in nature, we find that they grow, as I said, as colonies or biofilms, and that's how they do most of their important work, either negatively as in causing disease or positively as in carrying out all of the geochemistry of the planet and making sure that all of the elements get recycled and the gases are appropriate for the atmosphere and so forth.
2: Can, can you give me an example of a biofilm where I could find one? Maybe, maybe I could find one in the mirror.
6: Well, people, for example, who look at mine drainage find that they're full of bacteria and biofilms, and you just stick something in there and pull it out, and it's covered with this slimy bacterial biofilm. And those are the bacteria which are metabolizing the uh, the metals in the in the mine drainage.
2: What What about my teeth? Are Are, are they covered with well, a biofilm? Well,
6: dental plaque is another kind of biofilm, of course.
2: Yeah, and that gets replaced. I mean, I brush my teeth, and what do they do? They just start all over again.
6: They start all again. They start very quickly, in fact.
2: You, you mentioned that they like to uh, sort of nuzzle up to one another. They like to maximize contact, one to the next. Does this have anything to do with their reproduction? Because, you know, their reproduction is, it's asexual. It's not, you know, the way we think of traditional reproduction, where you have a, you know, a whole family tree going back who knows how far. This is kind of more uh, a group love, except I don't think there's any love.
6: Well, you'd be surprised. I think we've underestimated the bacteria. That's why I use the the title that they're small but not stupid. When we started using antibiotics, we didn't realize how quickly the bacteria would accumulate resistance. And we had a theory of how it would happen by mutation. But what we learned was that even though we had that theory and even though we could do experiments in the laboratory that confirmed the theory, it was wrong. They became resistant by picking up DNA, which encoded enzyme systems that could inactivate antibiotics or pump them out of the cell or change the structure uh, of molecules and organelles inside the cell so that they were no longer sensitive. And this ability to trade uh, DNA back and forth, what we call horizontal DNA transfer, has actually turned out to be a very important and ongoing part of bacterial history. So they have sex, they have means of transferring genetic information back and forth, and they do it all the time and they can acquire uh, very complex biochemical capabilities uh, very rapidly by doing that.
2: To what degree are we or our behavior or our state of health or anything else determined by bacteria? Because I think uh, a lot of people will know now that uh, there are more bacterial cells in our body than there are, if you will, homo sapiens cells.
6: Well, we influence the bacteria. Uh, We produce lots of molecules which affect their behavior. And they produce molecules which affect our behavior as well. I have a colleague at the University of Chicago, John L. who studies morbidity after surgery. And he found that it was because after surgical injury, the body uh, produces molecules that induce the bacteria to produce toxins and so the bacteria are picking up on signals from the body and then sending out molecules which in this case do damage to the body. When bacteria cause disease, they actually can inject proteins into the cells of their host organisms and these can take over the regulation of those cells so that the bacteria can enter, invade, and proliferate inside. I think that's pretty sophisticated.
2: Well it is, well clearly it affects our well-being, it affects our health do they in any sense affect our behavior, our conscious behavior, our deliberate behavior?
6: Goodness. Uh, I'm not sure I know the answer to that question. Uh, I think that's something that we have to investigate. And of course, I think we have to investigate how conscious all of our behavior actually is.
2: Jim Shapiro, thank
6: you
1: so much for talking
6: with me today. Thank you very much for calling and, and asking such interesting questions.
1: James Shapiro thinks big about the very, very small as a bacterial geneticist at the University of Chicago. Well, certainly makes you think
2: twice about using even soap.
1: (laughs) Well, no, as someone who works with you, definitely stick with soap, I can tell you. Do not think twice
2: about it. Don't get yourself in a lather. Look, it's the end of our show, and there's one group that we know is self-aware. Besides the groups that support us, Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, and the support of our listeners.
1: And the self-aware group is our staff, Barbara Vance. I'm certain that if I just give Seth and Molly hard deadlines, they'll plan their time accordingly.
4: Jay Weiler. I may be a volunteer, but I bet there's still going to be a big bonus check waiting in my mailbox at the end of this month. And Gary Niederhoff. Seth and Molly know that I know they know I'm the real brains behind this show, nay, the genius but they withhold credit. They'll see. They'll see one day.
1: (laughs) If you enjoyed the show so much, you just want to hear it again,
2: or just want to comment, congratulate, or sound off, please visit our website or our Facebook page.